Good evening and welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Hunter Combs, once again in the studio with Dr. Hammond to discuss the important issue of understanding the challenges of our times. Thanks for having me on the show again, Dr. Hammond. It's always great to tackle these issues and we praise God for the From the Frontline medium that we have. Hmm, absolutely. And so what we're going to be discussing tonight is the importance of a Christian worldview um, and really looking at the problems that sort of undergird this problem, which really comes from uh, the universities and education system in our world today. So let's start before we get into understanding a biblical worldview is what are some of the problems we see sort of facing us as the church, facing us as the people of God, as we begin to want to know how we engage our world, how we engage with some of these problems, whether they're atheism or new age movement or whatever it is, how, what is some of the problem undergirding this Christian worldview and raising our children up in a Christian worldview? Well, surveys indicate that most young people from a church background do not have a biblical worldview. Mm. In fact, according to Gallup, less than 10% of churchgoers have a biblical worldview. So that's pretty shocking. Mm. According to surveys, over 75% of churchgoers today view socialism as the best economic system, which wow. you, know, you just think like, do not steal, do not covet your neighbor's goods. Mm. Uh, pretty basic socialism, institutionalized envy, it's legalized mm. theft. And yet there's many people who think that's the economic system to go with because mm. that's what the world promotes. And then you even have over 60% of churchgoers today feel that if, if what you believe offends someone or if it hurts their feelings, then it's wrong. Mm. Now, tolerance of what the Bible describes as perversion, or sin, or an abomination. This is rising amongst young adults, but intolerance for biblical standards, including for marriage, for family, and society, is steadily increasing. So we're seeing a rise of intolerance, and we're seeing uh, also a rise of, of not only intolerance for biblical standards, but tolerance for unbiblical, unchristian mm. standards. So this is very uh, tragic, especially when you consider that the vast majority of young people who go from Christian homes into universities stop attending church within the first three years. Mm. So within three years of entering university, 75% of young people will stop attending church. Now, we're not even mm. talking about attending a good church, a midweek Bible study. Mm. We're not talking about them necessarily being saved or walking in victory with the Lord, just meaning church attendance, which wow. is a pretty a basic standard. It doesn't necessarily mean it's... it's um, uh, a vibrant relationship with the Lord going on there. But plainly, if any army lost 75% of their number, it wouldn't be considered a defeat. It would be a catastrophic disaster hmm. uh, beyond comprehension. And yet the church is sending the young people off to universities without preparing them, hmm. without them being able to do battle in these very hostile anti-Christian environments. And of course, universities shouldn't be anti-Christian environments because hmm. The very name university testifies to its Christian origins. Uni Veritas, one truth. Yet most professors today don't even believe there's an objective truth that can be known. Secular humanists, I say, should open up a polyversity hmm. or a diversity <laughs> or an aversity, but a university should, by the very name and origin, be Christian. Hmm. Yeah, and yet there's so little actual Christianity even tolerated on a Christian or on a university campus. It's interesting how the word 
tolerance is sort of thrown out in today's day and age. Tolerance not only means, I mean, tolerance in its sort of dictionary definition means we have differences of worldview, differences of opinion, and we tolerate each other because we don't agree. But tolerance has come to say we actually, oh, you just actually agree on everything. You tolerate, oh, well, you you believe there is no God, so I'm actually going to accept that. It's almost you have to embrace everyone's mm-hmm. truth. But that's not what tolerance even means by a dictionary definition of the word. Well, yes, when I was growing up, tolerance was understood as it had been for centuries, that you are polite to people you disagree with, mm. that you um, recognize that there's different opinions. It didn't mean that you agreed with. It didn't mean that you applauded. And certainly didn't mean that you funded what you didn't mm. agree with. So today, tolerance has been now morphed into something completely different. To tolerate different opinions and to be polite with your neighbors and people that you might disagree with at work or at college uh, now means you've got to agree, you've got to applaud, Hmm. you've got to conform. Hmm. If you don't conform now, you've been called intolerant. And that's not what a dictionary definition of tolerance means. Hmm. Not at all. So where do you think this comes from? Does this come from sort of a postmodern worldview or where do you even get this sort of, oh, just tolerate everything? I mean, it's almost standard. Everyone accepts it. Oh, yeah, well, we all kind of believe the same thing or many paths to one God or, oh, you just need to be more tolerant of those who are uh, embracing a homosexual lifestyle, meaning not only you should tolerate them, but you should actually applaud and celebrate what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you're using your services like you're a baker, you should actually bake them cakes and, and join in the celebration. Well, that's not tolerance. That's changing your whole perspective. Altogether. So do you think this comes from sort of postmodernism or this sort oh, of definitely. abandonment of uh, universal truth, if you will? Yes. And of course, this comes on a positive side. Uh, there's a huge amount of negativity that's been pushed on. They've been brainwashing. They've been indoctrinating and Hollywood's been doing its bit and the news media has been doing its mm-hmm. part. And you can see erosion on educational institutions. So that that's uh, on, on the well positive sense in one go. But on negative side, there's a whole lot of good things that we're failing to do. In many cases, the average Christian doesn't know his Bible. Hmm. In fact, the average pastor in the pulpit hasn't read through every book in the Bible. Hmm. Uh, forget studied, hasn't read through hmm. every book in the Bible. I know that because when I was at theological college, and I was in a good theological college, but we regularly had our Old Testament professor asking, now how many of you have read the book that we've just been studying for the last semester? Hmm. You know, which could be a small book like Daniel or a large book like Psalms or Exodus or Ezekiel and so on. And would you know, there was a whole lot of students who at the end of every term couldn't put up their hands. They hadn't read the whole book. Oh, my goodness. Which is, and at one time, I suppose the answer was inevitable. The same professor, Fritz House, asked the assembled college all years, how many of you have read the whole Bible? And a few hands started to go up and then one person said, you mean the New Testament, sir? And he said, no, I mean the whole Bible, <laughs> and hands went down all over the college. And that's shocking, actually, mm. to think it's bad enough if the average Christian hasn't read the whole Bible. There's only six, six books. In fact, it's not that much if you think about it. Mm. If you read one chapter a day, you can get through the whole Bible in four years, and, and one mm. chapter of the Bible is very short. Mm. You know, you're talking about five, six minutes on average. So considering there's 1,187 chapters in the Bible, if you read four chapters a day, you'd get through the whole Bible in a year. I mean, how difficult is that? 15 minutes a day, you could get through the whole Bible in a year. And the New Testament's not even as big as many of the novels that the average person goes through. So it's inexplicable why we've got so much biblical literacy, not just in the pews, but in the pulpit. So because most people haven't read the Bible, 
And because most pulpits aren't expounding through every book of the Bible or through every text in even a, a book of the Bible, you are getting a lot of topical sermons which often mm. deal with how to be happy, financial freedoms, mm. love, courtship, marriage, this sort of thing. But there's not necessarily dealing with all areas of life. Mm. And so the way it was described uh, by Francis Schaeffer is we tend to see the worlds in bits and pieces instead of mm. getting the whole picture. And so you've got a few zoom lenses, but you have no wide-angle lens, and there's, uh, there's no totality, there's no worldview. So that most Christians have picked up a bit here and there. Most of what the average Christian's thinking, Francis Schaeffer said, is unbiblical. We've imbibed more from the world so that in many cases, the average Christian, if you're reading more secular books and magazines than Christian, if you're surfing more secular sites than Christian sites, if you're watching more secular films than Christian, mm. well, after a while, you might have a Christian heart, but you're going to get more and more of a humanist mind. Mm. We might feel like Christians, but in many cases we think like humanists. Or practical atheists is the way that Franz Schaeffer pointed out. And I think that that's going on. So this has been coming for a while, and Francis Schaeffer warned us back in the 70s. The Great Evangelical Disaster was one of his books, which was very devastating, just pointing out this, all these dangers and neglecting solid rock biblical foundations mm. and moving into touchy-feely, um, emotional kind of response and being more influenced by the world and being afraid to be controversial and not wanting to be uh, disapproved of, that all of these things are opening ones up to being changed by the world. Instead of us, as the Bible says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the reading of your minds. But in many cases, the average person has been conformed to the world, mm. especially through en education, entertainment, news media. And as a result their minds not being renewed, their minds being maybe even removed mm. or conformed. So there's two sides. There's the propaganda from the left, but then there's also a failure on the side of the church to adequately prepare our minds, which I think is why you had R.C. Sproul having the title of, of one of his major radio programs was Renewing Your Mind. Mm. I mean, what can be more important? Our minds need to be renewed according to the Word of God. Mm. Absolutely. And so... We've talked in the past about how the university in many ways is sort of the enemy's um, stronghold and their tool they're using to sort of overcome a Christian worldview or replace the Christian worldview with a Marxist worldview, with a atheistic worldview. And um, yeah, maybe you could talk a bit more about that. You talk about how the ancient Greeks and Romans did not have universities. Maybe you could... Uh, expound that a little bit. Yes, so actually universities were Christian innovation. Now that may surprise people, but the fact is the ancient Greeks and Romans didn't have universities. The ancient Greeks had philosophers like Thales and Xenophanes and Perimendes and Zeno and Pythagoras and Democritus, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They also had their poets like Euripides and Aristophanes and Sophocles. And the Romans had some gifted thinkers like Seneca and Cicero and Pliny and Lucetius mm. and Tacitus. These were gifted men, but they developed no permanent institutions. They didn't develop libraries. There's no guild of scholars for students. They didn't certify anyone. They didn't test theories. They didn't engage in research. They ignored and spurned the inductive method. It is incorrect to assume, as many have done, that the universities of the 21st century are direct descent of ancient Greek philosophers because mm. Plato and Socrates were not setting up universities and neither was Aristotle. They had philosophies, but they didn't actually engage in research. Mm. So universities are a Christian innovation. Evidence 
confirms universities grew out of the Christian missionary endeavors and the monasteries. Now, the Benedictine Order's first monastery at Monte Cassino in Italy in 528 AD, that's in the 6th century, mm. placed great value on the literary treasures of antiquity. So Monte Cassino was considered the godfather of libraries. And the Benedictines collected books and copied manuscripts and loaned books to other monasteries and the required monks to read daily. And so the libraries of the monasteries were described as the armory, similar to the armory of a castle. Mm. And so from these scriptoria and libraries developed the universities of Europe. So some might say that the school of law founded by Emperor Theodosius, who was a Christian, in 425 AD at Constantinople might have been a new lib uh, a beginning of, of a university. Well, it was a law school. It had 31 professors that did teach Latin and Greek and law and philosophy. Uh, that could be considered one of the earliest forms of university, and that was thoroughly Christian. There's the medical school in Salerno in Italy, founded in the 10th century, thoroughly Christian. The University of Bolgona in Spain, founded in 1158 due to Emperor Frederick uh, Barbarossa. The University of Oxford, dated back to 1096. Mm. It was the University of Oxenford, the ford crossing of the uh, oh, Thames okay. River. And uh, so the Oxenford became Oxford. And that's the oldest university in the English-speaking world. And the second oldest university still in operation in the world. The motto of Oxford is Dominus Illuminato Mir, or the Lord is my light. Hmm. The University of Paris was founded in 1200. The University of Cambridge was, found, Cambridge was founded in 1209. And many universities had Proverbs 1 verse 7 as their motto, engraved in stone over the entrance of institutions. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And some have the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. Also from Proverbs. So all the universities from the 10th century through till the 19th century were founded as Christian institutions with theology as the queen of sciences and law and medicine as other foundational faculties. So most universities actually grew out of Christian monasteries and mission stations with the Christian monks and missionaries being the very first professors. And that's the way it even was if you look at uh, universities founded in India. William Carey um, Missionary, father of the modern missionary movement, uh, being the professor of Oriental languages, uh, founding these universities. So, uh, Professor Alvin Smith, in How Christianity Changed the World, documents universal education, schools for both male and female, schools for all classes, is a uniquely Christian innovation. Catechetical schools, schools for catechism, cathedral schools, episcopal schools, monasteries, medical universities, schools for the blind, schools for the deaf, Sunday schools, grade schools, secondary schools, modern colleges, universities, and universal education all have one thing in common. They're all products of Christianity. And so Dr. James Kennedy and Jerry Newcomb in their book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born, which I think is one of the finest books I've ever read, hmm. states, every school you see, public or private, religious or secular, every school is a visible reminder of the religion of Jesus Christ. So is every college and university. So I think that may be a surprise to some people. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think most people think of university and they think, oh my word, university is this place where the, just secularism is so rampant. If you go there as a Christian, your Christian faith is going to be ripped out and uh, you're basically going to come away bloodied and battered, which in many cases is what happens. And it's because 
we're not training our generation. We're not training up the next generation to go to war. I mean, you send your kid off to university, they're going into a spiritual war. Uh, Paul talks about the spiritual battle not only being against flesh and blood, but against principalities. But also he talks about um, them being, we're taking every thought captive uh, to the word of God. And so how do you take those thoughts captive if you don't understand the attack that's going to actually be coming at us in these universities we're going into? And so that's a big, big issue that we need to actually prepare our kids for facing the universities. We do indeed. But of course, part of that is knowing our history. And yeah, exactly. when we understand that universities have not always been the temples of secular humanism mm. and the cesspools of moral decadence that they've all too often become today, there was a time when universities actually were centers of biblical reformation and revival. Just think of some of the greatest university professors in history. They were Christian reformers like Professor John Wycliffe of Oxford University, the morning star of the Reformation, mm. they called him. He is the greatest professor of the greatest university of his time. Professor Jan Hus, rector of Prague University in what today is the Czech Republic. Professor Martin Luther of the University of Wittenberg. Well, everyone's got to have heard of him. He's actually the second most famous person in the world. Hmm. Nobody's got more books written about them uh, than our Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, a distant second is Martin Luther. And if you go to the University of Congress, you find that there's, without doubt, there's more books on Jesus Christ than anyone else in history. Hmm. And secondly, Martin Luther. So hmm. that's intriguing. Uh, that's one of the biggest libraries in the world, by the way. So uh, then you've got Professor John Calvin, who founded the Academy of Geneva, and the English reformer William Tyndale, graduate of both Oxford and Cambridge universities, the first to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. William Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Some of the greatest missionaries of the 19th century came out of the university missionary movement, like C.T. Studd and the Cambridge Seven. So universities should not be doomed to decadence. By God's grace, we can see universities once again be one for Christ and become centers of biblical reformation. I like the term campus for Christ because hmm. that's what we should be doing is reclaiming our campuses for Christ. Hmm. Absolutely. So how, how do we go about doing that of reclaiming our campuses for Christ. I mean, in many senses, I think a lot of people have tried to do this by not necessarily reforming the university, but rather starting or planting new universities to say, okay, yeah, the world has basically taken over Oxford, Cambridge, a lot of these places. They're no longer seminaries. They're cemeteries, spiritually speaking. Mm -hmm. They may have a lot of quote unquote good scholarship coming out of them, but one prerequisite is you have to deny basically everything Christian uh, to be a scholar in these universities. Um, and so I guess a good question would be, how do we reclaim these campuses mm -hmm. for Christ? Can we actually reclaim a campus like Oxford or can we, do we rather have to replant a whole new university in order to reclaim their campuses for Christ? I think it's both and. Okay. We should be starting expressly Christian schools and universities and homeschooling, of course, but then we should be taking these uh, back because... The, the Bible is clear. Every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. We call to make disciples of all nations and teach obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. So education is an essential part of the Great Commission. Mm. Therefore, we cannot just abandon universities. Mm. Although we, uh, that doesn't mean I'd want to send any of my children to a yeah. secular university. And in fact, I haven't. Um, but all the same, we still have to be working to reclaim the universities mm. for Christ. There's some people who are dedicated Christians, 
who want to study something very specific, engineering perhaps and so on, and maybe there aren't such departments available in existing Christian universities in our area. And so they might venture into the, well, now, how can we best prepare a Christian who must go into a secular university that he can be an excellent witness and that he not only will survive but thrive mm. and not only keep his faith but win other people to the faith mm. and be a good testimony in the, in the university classrooms. And I think that the God's Not Dead film series has been a very helpful in mm. showing that you can make a stand in university campuses and you don't need to check your brains in at the door or uh, mm. hand in your faith yeah. um, uh, at the door sort of thing. So we need to thoroughly prepare and equip and empower our young people in our churches to be salt and light, to make an impact for Christ, not just in the neighborhood and the community, but in whatever college or job that they go into. And Colossians 2 verse 8 is a most important verse here. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world and not according to Christ. So Colossians 2 verse 8 makes it clear that there is an empty deceit. There is a false philosophy which, which is humanistic, which follows the tradition of man, which isn't founded in the rock of God's word. And if you just think of the Sermon on the Mount where Lord Jesus said you get two types of people, a wise man and a foolish man, you get two doors, a narrow door and a broad way. You get the broad road that leads to destruction. It's smooth, it's downhill, it's easy, it's uh, popular. But then you get the steep way. It's narrow, it's difficult, it's rocky, hmm. it's not popular. Um, but you don't choose the road by how comfortable it is. You choose the road by, is it going to the destination I want? Absolutely. And you get two kinds of people, a person who builds his house on a rock and a man who builds his life on the sand. Now, you could look at these two houses and say, well, what's the difference? Well, when everything's going well, maybe not much. But when the rain falls and the flood rises and the wind blows and the storm rages, a house built on sand is going to collapse, hmm. but a house built on a rock can stand. And that's true in people's lives. So, again, you may look at your child and you think, you know, they exemplary youth leader, uh, <laughs> A and uh, lots of gold stars in Sunday school, whatever it is. And then you send them to university. And next thing, this chap's life falls apart. And mm. before you know it, they're in the world. And you think, where did all these tattoos and body piercings come from? And why is this? death metal being played from his room and uh, why is he so sullen and why doesn't he want to attend church anymore? Well, you know, <laughs> did mm. you prepare him for the, is he founded in a rock? Can he endure the battles that's going on in the university? There's a battle warring for his mind as a battle for his heart and his soul. And so this is why we designed the Biblical Worldview Summits to try and prepare young people for debate, for argument, to understand the ideas that rule the world, to understand the consequences of bad ideas and, and empty philosophical arguments, that they can understand what's behind humanism and the assumptions and the implications, but also evolution and the fraud of so much of evolutionism and what good science is and what real science is and, and how to weigh the evidence. And so it's so important that we, you know, when people say, oh, well, I'm sending my youngster to be a witness up at the university. Well, fine, but is he prepared? You don't mm. send an untrained person into battle. And this is, a, this is more serious than a physical battle because it's not just the body that can get killed or crippled here. Mm. It's minds and souls for eternity that can get affected. And this is very serious. So I think it's disturbing how few people, how few churches even, really invest in 
worldviews, training, and understanding all its... Because I know this, when the average person comes to one of our camps, we have a questionnaire at the beginning, we have another questionnaire at the end, and a Bible exam in between. But, but the question at the beginning, we ask questions like, how would you describe a biblical worldview? Average person, blank. I mean, like, mm. just no idea. How would you describe biblical economics? Many people leave it blank. Some put tithing. Okay, well, I suppose tithing is part of it, but that still doesn't explain how the economy works. Mm. Biblical view of crime and punishment. You'd be horrified. The average youngster puts down under, it's not just youngsters, uh, the average person puts down under crime and punishment, the government must forgive. Mm. You have a lawless society. (laughs) Whoa. Um, Do they not understand the difference between the ministry of grace in the church and the ministry of justice in the state? The state has a sword of justice and the church has the keys of the kingdom. The ministry of grace and the ministry of justice run parallel. They're both under God, but they have different functions. It's not the position of the government to forgive. The job of the government is to protect lives and property and to enforce respect for the law, to protect and to serve. But uh, grace is not the job of the government. Mm. Grace is the ministry of the church. And so this kind of confusion. Then you have another question there. Can evolution be reconciled with the Bible? And uh, many people put yes. And uh, mm. uh, do you believe in evolution? And many Christians write yes. Mm. So average Christian has no problem with evolution and Christianity thinking, well, it kind of worked together. God probably mm. created using. Can the Genesis account be taken literally? Some Christians put no, mm. which is disturbing because if, if you can't take Genesis literally, that's the foundation for the rest of the Bible in so many ways as answers in Genesis well shown in many different ways. So it's disturbing even when you ask a question like, can, do you believe that your country can be one to Christ? And a lot of people put no, or I don't know. Hmm. And so these are just a few questions that immediately show that the average person, even coming to a biblical worldview seminar, doesn't actually know a biblical worldview yet. Hmm. And well, that's what it's set up for. But it means that the average church or youth group uh, even family is not adequately recognizing the threat or adequately preparing the young people to know what they believe, why they believe it, and how to defend it in argument. Hmm. And it's so, so important and so serious. I have two people just off the top of my head that are some of the, one of them was a person in my youth group growing up. She was one of the most solid Christians, not just like sort of a Christian. She was the most, one of the most solid Christians, a leader in our youth group. Uh, everyone thought, yeah, she's she's rock solid. She went off to university. She left her faith. And she was one of the most solid Christians there. Oh uh, and someone in my Bible college, um, he also was very solid. I mean, his dad was a part of the university for years and years. Very solid, a good friend of mine, and recently found out he's walked away from the Lord as well. And so, And he also went to a secular university. And so I think it's not to be taken lightly or flippantly that we just go off to university, even if you're a quote unquote solid Christian (laughs) and you'll get away unwounded or unscarred. Uh, I think it's very, very serious that we think about, okay, what are, are we ready to go into the battle and what are we preparing our kids for? And so that's Mm -hmm. why we need to think really deeply about the importance of a biblical worldview. And exactly, this is why we, why you've sort of put together the Biblical Worldview Summit based on Summit Ministries in the States, David Noble's ministry. Um, and so maybe you could talk a bit more about that, just having a Biblical Worldview as we are preparing 
us personally here uh, going into the Biblical Worldview Summit that will be coming up on the 6th mm-hmm. of January, 2022. Um, but how we can actually do this, obviously one, one thing people can do is attend the Biblical Worldview Summit, but what are some aspects of a biblical worldview? What are some of the foundations? Yes, I don't think the average person understands the amount of intellectual intimidation and psychological intimidation that's rampant on many college campuses today. Mm. And not only, in many workplaces it would be the same. Uh, So it's vital to know the enemy, to recognize his tactics and his strategies, and to understand the times and to know how to articulate and defend a Christian worldview and biblical ethics in an increasingly aggressive and anti-Christian society. So we're involved in a world war of worldviews. I recognized this quite some time ago. And uh, back in 1989, I met with uh, David Noble, and he invited me to come to the summit in the States. And for many years, I was a regular guest speaker at the summit and learned a lot and adapted it for here. We even invited David Noble, who, who for over 50 years ran Summit Ministries, absolutely phenomenal ministry. And he wrote the doorstopper book, Understanding the Times, which, as James Kennedy said, if you master understand times, it's more valuable than the average college education, which is without a doubt. There's one book. It's a big book. But, wow, it takes 10 major issues, everything from ethics, biology, uh, through to uh, worldviews on origins and uh, through to ethics. It's just outstanding. And uh, uh, it looks at it from a biblical point of view and then also exposes what the Marxist and New Age and uh, – uh, the Islamic worldviews and how they all, all work. And so it's so important that we, we understand the biblical worldview, not just from our perspective, but from other people's perspective so that we can see the strengths and weaknesses of different arguments and, and be able to engage in really meaningful iron sharpens, iron discussion. And truth doesn't fear investigation. And uh, facts should not fear being questioned. In fact, have you noticed how uh, people who are lying hate to be questioned? Hmm. But people who are honestly trying to communicate truth, welcome questions. And so, for example, if you are uh, wanting to do a debate on uh, creation science, we've done it often. So uh, I brought out Dwayne Gish here back in 1980s, uh, I think it was 1990. Dwayne Gish from Institute of Creation Research. He's one of our speakers at a conference here. We try to get uh, evolutionists to debate him. Well, evolutionists were not interested in debating him, even in 1990. Dwayne Gish Mm. wrote a book, From Fish to Gish, that was one of the Memorable titles. And uh, uh, he was just such an intelligent creation science debater uh, that nobody was willing to debate him. And we found the same with Philip Stott, our own resident South African uh, creation scientist. Philip Stott's brilliant. And uh, I've seen him at work in universities, lecturing. We organized lecture opportunities all over. And none of these uh, scientists were willing to debate him. But we did see that they, they sneaked in at the back and they had even I saw in one of them a handbook on how to uh, debate with creation scientists. And he was sort of reading out from it from the back as he's asking questions from the floor. <laughs> and every question from the most hostile people, I'm talking about University of Cape Town, University of Western Cape, Stellenbosch University, down at uh, um, the Cape Technicon as well. And uh, on each occasion, Philip Stott, without notes, you'd see him uh, sort of rubbing his hands with glee and smiling, <laughs> saying, I'm so glad you asked that question. Without notes, you just answer, step up. Now, I may not have understood all the implications of all mm. the scientific things brought up, for sure I didn't, uh, but I did understand this. He was able to, in a hostile environment, answer the heads of departments of mm. geology and biology and so on, with them, in the end, not able to say a thing. I mean, there's no doubt he 
out-debated them on their own turf. Now, when you could see, and then we'd invite these questioners, would you like to be part of a radio program, Salt and Light and Radio Tigerberg, organized debates, equal time between you and Philip mm. Slot? Nope, they were not. And we've seen this with the pro-lifers as well, with the pro-choices. They, the pro-choices are not willing to debate in public. They, mm. they tried it first, and then they just realized they're not winning. And this, I think, should convince a skeptic when you can see who is willing to answer questions, who's willing to debate. And if you're afraid of public questions, then what are you hiding? Mm. Um, but I could see this. No creation scientist I know, whether we're talking about Ken Ham, Philip Stockdwayne, none of them are afraid of debate. None of them are afraid of going mm. into the most hostile environment. And they can answer any questions. And I never heard them stumped. Never. Mm. And I've followed Philip Stoll around many a meeting we've organized. So I think that should encourage a lot of our young people who say, you know, I want to be a Christian scientist. I want to be a Christian engineer, but I'm afraid what's going to happen in university. Well, you don't need to be afraid. If you're well equipped, the better trained you are and the better equipped you are, the more confident you can be in these situations. And um, it's the same as in the military. Obviously, everyone should be afraid of war where there's metal flying all over the place and, you know, you can lose limbs and life um, but the better trained you are and the better you understand the enemy and the more experience you get the more confident you get mm. and it's the same thing when it comes to arguments in the world war of worldviews we're involved in a clash of civilizations it's vital we know what do I believe why do I believe it how can I defend it and explain to others more importantly how can I win my friends and neighbors and strangers and fellow students to the Lord and of course all that's part of a good biblical worldview summit is to train us in effective evangelism. Mm. And that's, yeah, that's exactly why we have the BWS, so that we can get some of these, both the academic knowledge of how you address these arguments, but also the experience. It's not just head knowledge. We're really getting you out there, sharing the gospel, but also uh, practices like just a minute, getting people to experience, okay, how do I on my toes quickly articulate and uh, how am I able to actually speak and communicate what I believe? And I think that's a, huge value to those who are considering going into university as well. Just having these practical experiences of, okay, how do I actually try this? How do I actually test this out? How do I actually put words to my faith as well? And so that's, I think, a big thing you get at a Biblical Worldview Summit is you get some of the knowledge you need, but also boots on the ground action. How do we put this into practice? How do we how do we just continue sharing the gospel? How do we stand fast, be faithful when we're in a secular environment like that? And so those are some of the things that you will be equipped with if you do come to the Biblical Worldview Summit. Um, yeah, so let's uh, <clears throat> maybe in our last 10 minutes here on the program, let's uh, unpack that a bit. Some more of a Biblical Worldview, uh, the Biblical Worldview Summit, what people can expect at that as we're going forward here. Yes, so Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Well, mm -hmm. is that a word for today? The days are evil. We're living in a time of confusion. We're living in a time of compromise. living in a time of apostasy. Mm -hmm. We're living in a time of deceit. Uh, it's so important that we understand what's going on in the world, and we, that we understand from a biblical point of view. And to be amongst those people who understand the big picture, not just in bits and pieces. And so for over 30 years, Frontline Fellowship has been organizing these biblical worldview summits, encouraging, equipping, empowering Christians to know, uh, understand the times, know what God's people should do. So uh, just to give you some of the subjects we dealt with 
at this uh, last Biblical Worldview mm. Summit this year. How can I live a holy life in a polluted world? Mm. How can I follow Christ in a hostile world? Psychological warfare, gaslighting, and Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> if some people think, what is that? Well, that's something we deal with. That's what's <laughs> going on in universities. Standing for truth in a fake world. Countering the COVID cult. Resistance to revolution. Educational indoctrination. Coping with chaos. A biblical response. Economics or embezzlement. Social justice versus biblical justice. Weaponizing words and toxic terminology. What is science? Where did science get lost? What is evolution? Whatever happened to the flood? The universe that God made it. And what about all those millions of years? And you can change the world and replacing lives with truth. Those are just some of the titles of what we dealt with this year. And of course, it's not just lectures. It's not just information. Uh, we have that in the mornings. We have some great films too. We have uh, international speakers and authors uh, involved in these things. But it's practicals, lots of practicals. There's lots of sports and team building, problem solving, obstacle crossing, um, water sports as well, and uh, a whole lot of great things that's involved, including self-defense skills, archery, air rifles, and things like that, sword fighting, uh, lots of ball games. And uh, mm. uh, we really have some... Uh, incredibly talented people when it comes to uh, not only uh, the physical sports but also music. I must say the variety concerts are always a real highlight because mm. we've got some great musicians and a few good comedians too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, participants have traveled to our Biblical Worldview Summits in Cape Town or near Cape Town. We normally hold them somewhere around Hermanus, Krabo area. Uh, but we've had people who've come from Australia, New Zealand, Botswana, Canada, the Congo, England, Germany, Ghana, Ireland, Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Nigeria, Pakistan, Russia, Scotland, Sudan, Switzerland, Uganda, the United States of America, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, from all over South Africa. So as our good friend and board member, Dr. James Kennedy said, the summit provides solid spiritual foundations to help keep your child's faith secure when the storms of godlessness and unbelief confront them. And that certainly is the goal. And we uh, base many of our lectures on these great textbooks, which we make sure are available to the participants. So people who come to the uh, summit will get lecture notes, they will get manuals, they will get textbooks, and if they prefer, they can get them in digital form. We give them in the SD cards or micro SD cards if they mm. prefer the phone, or on disk or flash drive, as the case may be. But uh, textbooks would include the Biblical Principles for Africa book, also in Afrikaans and French, Biblical Worldview Manual that I've done, and then The Battle for Truth and Understand the Times by David Noble, Advancing the Kingdom, Declaring War on the Humanistic Culture by Donald Schanzenbach. Uh, these are just some of the great textbooks, and there's a whole lot of others too. Uh, Dr. Ted Bear's books on uh, the, the culture wars and uh, being culture-wise family. So all these textbooks and other helpful resources, including brilliant films, um, you know, everything from The Case for Christ uh, mm. onwards, uh, these sort of films are available, and we put a lot on our digital libraries. So when a person comes to the summit, they not only are given great resources and many friendships that last for a lifetime, mm. uh, but uh, they also are able to go back with resources. And we put on our digital libraries PowerPoints, audios, videos, lecture notes, manuals, and so on, so that a person can uh, teach these materials to their home cell group or their Sunday school or the youth group or a church Sunday evening service, as the case may be. And uh, so the whole goal is to be replicated. And it's great if the people coming there benefit personally, 
but we actually want them to be able to go back and give these materials to their friends, family, neighbors, and especially if they can start a Bible study group in their school or college uh, or community. I mean, just that's what's going to multiply the impact the most. Mm. Absolutely. So that's coming up on the 6th of January, 2022. It's from the 6th till the 13th of January. So coming up pretty quick here in what, five, six weeks time, we have this camp coming up and it's going to be in Hermanus, Cape Town. So it's uh, fairly close for those who are in the Western Cape, but it's not limited just to people here in South Africa, to those who can actually make it to this side of the world. Who knows how that's possible in today's day and age, especially with current (laughs) red listing and blacklisting and shaming you for what country you're from. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about being tolerant of people. Uh Um, It's going to be in Cape Town and the cost is fairly affordable as well. It's 1,400 rand for our South Africans, which what that's about 100 US dollars, 90 US dollars for a whole week. That's pretty good. Um, You can't really get into many camps like this for such an affordable price. And we want it to be affordable because we want to equip as many people as possible. And so those are sort of some of the details. Um, But another sort of uh, benefit is we've had a couple people come away from the courses having met their future spouse and getting married after coming to the course. So that's that's not something we advertise. (laughs) It it does happen from an occasion. In fact, there's a lot of examples we can think of. Uh, Indeed, uh, some very good friends of ours. So... All the same, uh, the reason why we're able to keep it so affordable is effectively we don't charge for the course. We're just Mm. charging what the cost of the accommodation catering is to us. Uh, As far as the textbooks, we're giving those free. As far as the lectures, well, none of the lectures are getting paid. We're all donating our time. So that's why we can offer it at such a a really reasonable price. And and it's a beautiful camp venue as well. Very, very uh, beautiful venue. Uh, Secluded and uh, great facilities. Right next to the ocean as well. Right next to the ocean. Uh, which this year, um, this unbelievable lockdown at the last minute, uh, they tried to keep us off the beach, which uh, meant that you couldn't quite go easily during the day. They were, mm. Interesting, they can't seem to stop crime, but they can sure stop people going onto the beach during the hottest time of the year. <laughs> we pray that that won't happen this year. There's certainly been a lot of resistance to that, uh, but it's it's right next to the beach. I mean, you hear the ocean waves mm, at night. It's, it's beautiful, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a lovely environment just to be... Um, as, as the scripture says, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. And I think we feel like that afterwards. It, it's a vibrant, exciting camp program. It's, it's body, mind, and spirit. And it prepares young people to deal with issues, to face temptations and pressure of life biblically. And it seeks to equip young people with the facts and the skills they need to deal with the cancel culture, globalist, new world disorder, thought police. It's family friendly. There's even a vibrant children's parallel program for the younger children. So um, there's no reason why a person can't come with younger children too. And the children's program uh, is every morning and early evening and afternoons, of course, in the parents' hands. But there's a lot of activities in the afternoons because there's so many sports fields and activities all Mm -hmm. over and obstacle courses uh, that the children will not lack for uh, all sorts of things to do, but the morning's got a full structured, excellent program for the younger children too, uh, who, so that families of varying ages can happily attend. And there's discounts for families and groups. Mm. 
And if there's a day visitor who'd like to come through, there's no cost for day visitors. Uh, but if you will stay for a meal, there's a slight extra cost just to cover the cost of a meal. Again, so, it's at cost. At cost, We're exactly. not taking anything for ourselves. Exactly. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in sending a young person in your family or you'd like to attend, please contact admin at frontline.org.za. That's send an email to admin at frontline.org.za. Uh, you can visit our webpage, Frontline Mission sa.org that's frontline mission sa.org um it is coming up fairly quickly so we'd love to hear from you if you're interested in attending again the cost is 1400 rand that's a roughly 95 us dollars um it's going to be in hermanus cape town from the 6th of january to the 13th of january it's really an amazing opportunity an amazing time to come and meet some other like-minded christians it's you'll build friendships that last for life um, get a great experience, just be refreshed, restored, renewed in your faith, be given new vision, zeal, fervor for going back and making an impact on your university campuses, churches, wherever the Lord has brought you from. Uh, are there any closing thoughts here, Dr. Hammond, as we yes, close off the so show tonight? Yes, so if you go onto the Frontline Mission SA.org website, you'll see under events, there's a banner for Biblical Worldview Summit, and you go on there, and you will see uh, a video, a short two-minute video that gives you a bit of visuals on what's involved from a previous one. You can download the leaflet or poster if you want to um, either view it or share it uh, with others in your church or community. And you can also find, if you're on social media, Biblical Worldview Summit is a Facebook page, and you can see some great pictures of previous events as well. So uh, there's also an event that's been started on the Facebook page for those who like to use that or share that. So uh, get in touch with us. Uh, look for Biblical Worldview Summit on uh, the Frontline Mission SA.org website or on social media and uh, get in touch with admin at frontline.org.today. We hope to see many of you there. And remember, it's so important that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, the basic principles of this world, rather than Christ. So let's build on the rock. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Good night and God bless.